And we're going to work our way today. We finished up in verse 12 last week, and we're going to work from verse 13. We're going to work our way down through verse 21. But before we do, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love for us and for this day. Lord, we're looking forward to this day. Uh, We're thankful, Lord, for the wonderful blessings that you've poured out upon us. And Lord, we just want to respond. We we just, Lord, we just can't keep receiving and receiving without without wanting to respond and, and reciprocate. Lord, we pray that this morning you would show us how to be followers of Jesus, how to be serious and committed followers of Jesus. We ask that you do a great work in our hearts this morning, Lord that you speak to us now by your Spirit, through your Word, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, I've been going to the gym lately to try to stay fit and to try to keep some of the weight off. I'm in and out when I go to the gym, 30 minutes on the treadmill, about 15, 20 minutes lifting some light weights. You know, it's really all business for me. I get in, I get it over with, and I get back home. But you know, there's some other guys, I've noticed these guys, they're young guys, I see them there in the gym, and apparently they go to the gym for different reasons. They're going to look cool, or to be buff, or maybe to meet a girl. I've already got my girl, and so that's not a concern of mine. And so for me, it isn't so pretty when I go to the gym. I get my heart beat up, my face red my hair wet, my shirt soaked, then I go home. But these young guys, man, they stay at the gym for two hours without getting a single hair out of place. Their shirt is still dry. They go to the gym, but I'm not sure how hard they really work out. And there is a difference. Likewise, there's a difference between coming to church and getting in serious spiritual shape. You know, some folks come to church for the same reasons they go to the gym. It's cool to be somewhat spiritual and to have a buff-looking faith. Maybe they're a guy looking for a Christian girl or a girl looking for a Christian guy. Maybe that's why you come to church. But how serious are you about following Jesus? Once there was a teenager who wanted to buy a barbell and a set of weights. Some of his buddies were working out, and he thought a buff body would be cool. His father wasn't opposed to the purchase, but he really had his doubts about his son's determination and commitment to the rigors of weightlifting. The boy wanted the results, but the dad thought, would he pay the price? Well, despite the father's skepticism, the dad decided to go ahead and help his son with the purchase. As they shopped, the father continually, he quizzed his son several times. He said, are you sure you're going to stick with it? You know, weightlifting's hard work, son. Are you certain this is what you really want to do? The boy was adamant. He said, yes, sir. He was committed to lifting weights. He vowed to work out every single day. Well, finally, they picked out a set of weights, and they paid for them at the checkout counter. And the father walked off a few steps ahead of his son when he heard him shout, You mean I have to carry them to the car? Hey, here was a boy excited about lifting weights and bulging muscles. But there is a huge difference between good intentions and real commitment. The young man needed to ask himself, was he really serious about lifting weights? And this is similar to the question that Peter poses to us 
here in this morning's text. Are we serious about becoming followers of Jesus? As in weightlifting, so in the Christian life, there's a difference between good intentions and follow-through. We see God's blessings and we get excited. We covet bulging spiritual muscles. But are we really willing to seriously work out our faith? Well, this is how Peter begins. Verse 13. He says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. In other words, it's time to stop playing games and get serious. In the world of Peter's day, men wore long flowing robes that extended down to their ankles. And they wore a leather belt around their waist. Of course, the robe was cumbersome and restrictive. It limited a person's range of motion until it was time to do some strenuous work. To lift or run or jump or climb. And that's when the man would roll up his tunic. And he would roll it up and he would sort of gird it underneath his belt. It was the equivalent of rolling up your shirt sleeves or tightening your shoelaces or buckling up your chin strap. You were ratcheting up your intensity. You were upping your efforts. Gird up the loins meant getting serious about the task at hand. I'm afraid that too many people today are playing at their faith, just dabbling in Christianity rather than taking it seriously. It's been said, the modern world works at its play, worships its work, and plays at its worship. We piddle half-heartedly at what's ultimately important. Peter is telling his readers here that it's time to get serious about living for Jesus. They need to beef up their determination. They need to kick their faith in gear. Before I go further, let, let me make a clarification. Peter isn't telling us that the Christian life is a product of good works or elbow grease or our willpower. No, spiritual change and lasting peace and a new nature entail a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's God who does the work. Christian growth comes from the inside out rather than from the outside in. It's transformation, not just reformation. There's a quote I want to teach you this morning. It's a short saying, but it's long on truth. Listen to this carefully. You cannot change your heart, but you can change your mind. God can change your heart, but he won't change your mind. But if you choose to change your mind, then God will change your heart. Now I want you to say that with me. We, we're going we're gonna to read it together. You ready? Everybody ready? You cannot change your heart, but you can change your mind. God can change your heart, but he won't change your mind. But if you choose to change your mind, then God will change your heart. Now what does this mean? This is a profound truth. God's work in our lives waits on our cooperation. Your agreement with God is the key that allows him to work the changes he desires in your heart and in your life. You see, God is the perfect gentleman. He doesn't barge in where he's not invited or welcome. God won't change your mind if your mind is made up to resist him. You know, we all start out life hostile toward God. The Bible tells us that we're born with a proclivity to sin. 
were selfish and greedy from the womb. Jesus pointed this out when he made that sweeping statement. He who is not with me is against me. In other words, at some point in your life, you have to change your mind toward God. When you show God that you're willing and you're determined to obey him, then and only then, he'll change your stubborn and lustful and wayward heart. Here's what Peter's asking us. Have we girded up our minds? Have we gotten serious about following Jesus? In this morning's text, Peter tells us how to get serious about serving our Lord, following Jesus. He gives us six new ways to think, six mind changes that we need to make. I'm going to go through them and then I'll list them for you and then I'll go through them. First, we need to live with the end in view. Second, we need to live with holiness as our goal. Third, we need to live with the Father in mind. Fourth, we need to live with the blood of Jesus in the balance. Fifth, we need to live with God's purposes in sight. And then sixth, we need to live with hope in a risen Savior. Now notice in verse 13, Peter tells us, Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In short, as a Christian, I need to live my life with the end in view. I think it was Martin Luther who said, I live in light of two days, today and that day. Of course, he was speaking of the day that Jesus will return for his church. One day, we're going to see Jesus. And trust me, it's the most important appointment you have on your busy calendar. You would be wise to prepare for that encounter. You'll want to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Sadly, too many will hear, I never knew you. Depart from me. Thomas Edison was an honest man who never spoke a word he didn't believe. On the night before he died, his wife was by his bed. Suddenly, Thomas jerked up as if he had something to say. She leaned over her dying husband to hear him whisper, It's very beautiful over there. And indeed it is. Heaven is heavenly. The beauty of heaven is what we need to remember when life gets ugly. Hey, no matter how rough life gets, a Christian can always look forward to something infinitely better. As Peter said in verse 6, in light of eternity, even a long life is but for a little while. You know, the key to any race is to focus on the finish line. The beauties and the pleasures of coming attractions are what make an unbearable world bearable. Often it's said of Christians, they're so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. And I suppose that's possible. I suppose you could go off somewhere, sit on a mountaintop, stare off into space, and just wait on Jesus to return. But that's an inadequate understanding of what eternity holds. For heaven is so important that it doesn't just begin when you arrive there. Preparation for heaven starts today on earth. How you live and what you do today will shape how you'll spend eternity. C.S. Lewis once wrote, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. 
A believer will get serious about following Jesus when he lives with heaven in mind. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, the apostle is thinking of Jesus' return when he writes this. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. That's a nice way of saying you don't want Jesus to catch you with your pants down. Imagine returning for you the same night that you drank too much. Imagine Jesus coming back at the very moment you're flirting with your secretary or you're logging onto a porn site. When Jesus comes to snatch us away, we want to be found ready and eager and pure. As I said last week, the Christian life is seldom easy, but it's always worth it. And a primary consolation is what lies ahead. You know, God offers us delayed gratification. Faithfulness today yields blessings in the future. Yet this flies in the face of what makes this world go round. Folks today not only want it all, they want it now. Instant everything is the name of the game. Fast food, online shopping, internet bill play, instant messaging. I mean, walk a letter to a mailbox, raise the flag, it's delivered the next day, and we call it snail mail, as if it got there by the Pony Express. If we have to wait at all, for us, it's too late. Yet, if you carry this attitude to an extreme, it's going to cause great frustration and great disappointment in your relationship with God, you'll find that God isn't the very least interested in instant gratification. Most of his blessings are time capsules that release their contents long after they're swallowed. As the Bible puts it, you seldom reap in the same season that you sow. Nature and creation work off the principle of delayed gratification. There's always an in-between time and in the meantime. There's always a gap of time between the giving of God's promise and its reception. One of the prerequisites of the Christian life is you've got to develop some patience. God says, endure through the night and joy will come in the morning. Paul wrote to Corinth, he said, Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I read that and I think of the hardships of Job. He lost it all. Friends, family, fortune, fitness, all went over, out the window overnight. And yet God called it a light affliction? Job's plight sounds pretty heavy to me. And yet God calls it light because he's comparing it to the eternal weight of glory that will be enjoyed eventually by every believer. Paul would tell us that our first full second in heaven will be so exhilarating and so invigorating and so breathtaking that it will more than make up for ten lifetimes of suffering. The first full second. When you're weary or tempted or doubtful or discouraged, when you feel like giving up or giving in or giving out, remember, it's beautiful over there. Peter writes in verse 13, he says, Rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Grace is love we don't deserve. And heaven is a chief example of God's grace. Keep your sights on his grace 
the grace that you'll receive when Jesus returns. Once there was a pastor. He was teaching on heaven and the eternal pleasures and joys we'll experience there. He paused for a moment and then he asked the congregation, how many of you want to go to heaven? Raise your hand. Well, everybody's hand shot up in the air except the hand of one little boy. The pastor asked him, he said, son, don't you want to go to heaven? And the little guy replied, yes, sir. I just thought you were taking a load up right now. You know, and none of us know on which load we're on. You might be a young buck, but heaven could be closer than you think. Whether you're young or old, you need to live your life with its end in view. But you need to also live with holiness as your goal. Notice verse 14. It tells us to live as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Pursue holiness. This should be our goal. Understand, there is nothing on earth. No landscape, no seascape, no wonder of nature, no mountain or river or sunset as beautiful as a holy life. The only thing that rivals the beauties of heaven is the beauty of holiness. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 21, the people of God were appointed to, quote, sing to the Lord and praise the beauty of holiness. In contrast, it is tragic and sad that in our world today, it seems that holiness has almost become a dirty word. You see, the concept of holiness confuses lots of people. Certain Christian sects have been associated, have associated holiness with a strict list of do's and don'ts. Holiness is seen as obedience to a rigid legalism. Holy people dress a certain way and they walk a certain way and they act a certain way and they talk a certain way. But you see, holiness is simpler and more profound than a list or a look. Holiness is an attitude. The word means to set apart. Holiness is a life reserved for God. Holiness is about loving God to the point that pleasing Him becomes my chief concern. Think of a freshman girl in high school. She's got a crush on an older boy. She walks into the assembly. She's hoping and wishing that he'll sit beside her during the prep rally. Several of her friends walk over to sit down next to her and she shoes them away. She wants to keep this seat open at all costs. It's reserved for someone special. You see, this is the attitude of holiness. Holiness saves a seat for God. It saves a seat for God in my life and in my mind and in my heart and in my sexuality and in my social life and in my activities and in my leisure time. Have you saved a seat for God in the various areas of your life? Peter tells us in verse 14, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse. He writes, don't lazily slip back into those old grooves of evil, doing just what you feel like doing. You didn't know any better then, but you do now. When Jesus has a seat at the table, you watch what you're doing. Your life is not just about you. 
Just because it feels good doesn't make it right. Now you know better. You see, serious Christians think in terms of holiness. Verse 17 teaches another way that serious Christians think. He says, and if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. You know, you get serious about faith when you live with the Father in mind. You know, you and your earthly dead might be friends. But a father isn't just a friend. Over the course of a child's life, he'll have lots of friends, but a father is more. A good father holds you responsible. He points you in the right direction. He calls you into account. He holds sway over your life. He requires you to stick to your guns and do what you say. He can reward you or he can punish you, and he does both. He wields authority. And you see, God is our father. Again, I love Peterson's paraphrase here, verse 17. He says, you call out to God for help and he helps. He's a good father that way. But don't forget, he's also a responsible father and won't let you get by with sloppy living. Serious Christians remember, who's my daddy? They keep in mind that God is a father who deserves to be loved and appreciated and respected and feared. No sloppy living among God's kids. We need to live every day of our lives with our Father in mind. Several years ago, Franklin Graham held an evangelistic crusade in Australia. One night, a 15-year-old responded to the invitation. Later, a counselor reported on the conversation he'd had with the boy. When the young man approached the counselor, he, he was asked why he was responding to the message. He told him, Because I haven't been decent to Jesus. That's an interesting reply. Because I haven't been decent to Jesus. You see, our relationship with God is a personal relationship. And personal relationships, in personal relationships, people take things personally. Did you know this? We have a Father in heaven who loves us. But love can be offended. You can trifle with God. You see, the fact that God is love means he has feelings. It means that you can hurt his feelings. It means that you can upset his feelings. God can get mad. He can be sad. He can be glad. This is why throughout your stay on this earth, you need to live your life with your father in mind. You see, both life below and life above is a gift from God. And God takes personally how you live it. It reflects your attitude toward Him. We need to live with our Father in mind. Lou Little once coached football at Georgetown University. A young boy was on the team who caught Lou's attention. He was a big kid who worked real hard in practice, but he was more like a teddy bear than a defensive tackle. And so in the four years that he was on the team, the only game action he saw was either when Georgetown was up by 40 points or when they were down by 40 points. Lou just sort of kept him on the team because he was a good teammate. and He he was a morale booster. Coach Lou also noticed, though, the tight relationship that this boy had with his father. 
Whenever his dad visited, he, he would hold the old man's arm and he would escort him around campus. When news of the man's, the father's death came, Lou went to console his player. The coach set him down and assured him that if there was anything that he could ever do, the boy asked for Lou's prayers, and then the young man dropped the bombshell. He did have one other request. He said, Coach, can I start my last game? Oh, no. Lou didn't know how to reply. The last game was for the championship. This kid wasn't good enough to play, let alone start. And yet Lou was a man of his word. He agreed. He figured the boy would play one down and be done. But to everyone's amazement, the kid was awesome that day. He tackled a man in the backfield. He sacked the quarterback. He never exited the game. And afterwards, Coach Lou approached the kid and he asked him what had gotten into him. What motivated such an extraordinary performance? And that's when the young man, still grieving over the loss of his dad, told Lou the rest of the story. He said, Coach, my father was blind his whole life. And today, now that he's in heaven, is the first time he ever saw me play. You know, our Father in heaven is watching us as well. And he's just as excited as the dad in the story to watch his children play the game of life. That's why people who are serious about living out their faith and following Jesus keep their father in mind. Verse 18 gives us a fourth way to get serious about following Jesus. He says, live your life knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like gold or silver from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He's telling us to understand the cross and to always live with the blood of Jesus in the balance. You see, Peter reminds us that we weren't redeemed with corruptible, tarnishable materials like gold and silver. You know, if my soul had been bought by dollars or euros or pounds or yen, I wouldn't feel the obligation that I do. In fact, I'd probably try and pay off my debt as soon as I could. But my soul was purchased by a price that I can never repay. God's designs on my life are so high and so holy that he allowed his only son to go through a painful torture and execution. Like the lamb slaughtered by the priest, Jesus was condemned to grant my pardon and nailed to set me free. This week is Passion Week. We're having a great Thursday and a good Friday service. We're going to focus on the cross. And as we survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, as we consider how and why he died, it will pull us into a gravity of obligation that we can't easily skirt. His blood spilt means that we're loved and valued. It means that we have a God-given purpose, that we have a divine destiny. It means that for reasons that we will never fully grasp, God has laid a claim on our lives. He has ambitions for us. We were bought with a price, and we are no longer our own. In his book, Reasons for God, author Tim Keller writes of a woman he spoke to who was new to this whole concept of grace. All her life, she had tried to earn God's favor. 
Now she saw the beauty of grace, of receiving freely the favor that she could never earn. But she also saw its other edge. She told Tim that she was scared by grace. Scared by grace? How? Why? And that's when the new believer answered. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But I am a sinner saved by grace. Then there's nothing God can't ask of me. And she's right on. Don't don't misunderstand. Jesus didn't do it all for us in order to force us to do the same for him. Grace isn't some game of tit for tat. My devotion to Jesus will never rival his devotion to me. But can I receive God's grace and not be grateful? Of course not. You see, a deep sense of obligation is inevitable. This is why the New Testament refers to us as love slaves. Sacrifice of Jesus on the cross captures my heart and draws me into a relationship where no price is too great for me to show my love for him. The blood of Jesus ties me to a shooting star that lifts me above the temptations of this world and places me in a godly orbit. I'm drawn by the wounds of the Savior, the wounds he incurred for me. You see, when I live in light of the cross I realize that I can never retreat to my former, fleshly, immoral, prideful life. When I live with his blood in the balance, I live differently. In light of the cross, how can we not get serious about Jesus? If you want to get serious about following the Lord, live with the end in view and with holiness as your goal and with the Father in mind and with the blood in the balance and with God's purposes in sight. Be a person of purpose. Know that your life has meaning and direction. Evolution says you're just a chance arrangement of random molecules. Your life is of no more value than the algae growing in the retention pond behind the church. But that's not what Peter says about you. Verse 20, Jesus indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times. For who? For you, before the foundation of the world, God knew you. Before the planets were assigned their orbits, God knew your eye color and the swagger of your walk and what would tickle your funny bone. He also knew that you'd rebel, that you'd punk out and give in and dope up and go off. He knew that you'd cave into temptation and flesh out. God knew that you would deny him and go your own way. He knew. Before the foundations of the world, he knew. But he chose you. And he chose you to love you. And he sent Jesus for you. Before time began, God ordained Jesus to die in your place. This means your salvation, your position in Christ is no accident. God's interest in you is not some freakish thing. It's not impulsive. It's not a Johnny-come-lately. God made preparations to save you long before he hung the sun and stars in the heavens and brought the moon into sight. God did that for you. 
And I guess the question is, how can we forget him by the morning coffee break? How can we put him on the back shelf? How can we ever diss him? Serious Christians understand that their life has a God-sanctioned purpose and they muster all the energy they can to live with God's purposes in sight. Well, finally, verse 21 tells us, who through Jesus we believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You get serious about following Jesus when you live with your hope in a risen Savior. You see, the resurrection is all about hope. As we learned last Sunday night, if you were with us, the resurrection was not the end of anything. It was the beginning. And it would require more faith from the disciples rather than less faith. I love the last scene in the 1977 miniseries, Jesus of Nazareth, the political Jew who had conspired with Jesus, who did all the dirty work. He enters the tomb. And he discovers that the man he had helped crucify has risen from the dead. He holds the shroud in his hands and he gazes off into the distance. And he whispers to himself, now it begins. Now it all begins. And it does. The empty tomb proved conclusively that Jesus was alive and well. Even today, he's out there. He's working He's doing what pleases him. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead and lives today infuses hope into all of life's challenges. If Jesus desires he can hold back the tide or he can come to your rescue or he can change the course of my unchangeable circumstances, nothing is impossible for a risen Savior. Hit your wagon to the risen Lord Jesus and he'll take you places, friend. Your life will become an adventure. You'll see and do and hear and learn of things godly men of old only dreamed of knowing. Get serious about following Jesus and you'll live with hope in a risen Savior. Well, as I said earlier, there's a difference between frequenting the gym and working out. Just like going to church is not necessarily living for Jesus. If you want to be a serious Christian then live with the end in view and with holiness as your goal and with the Father in mind and with the blood of Jesus in the balance and with God's purposes in sight and with your hope in a risen Savior. You know, it's time for some of us to get serious. Father, thank you for your words today and for your love for us. We ask, Lord, that you continue to speak to our hearts this morning as we worship you. Lord, help us to get serious about following you. Some of us, Lord, have maybe become slack in recent weeks. We, we're piddling around with things that are of eternal importance. Help us all, Lord, to, to beef up our determination, to go strong in our faith, to get serious about following you and being the people you desire us to be. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the words of Peter today. We pray that we could take them to heart, live them out in our own lives. Help them, Lord, to inspire us to great things for Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name. And all God's people said, amen. You know, tonight we're going to have a very special uh, event here at Calvary Chapel. We're going to reenact a Passover Seder.
going to have a big table right here in the, in the foyer and in the altar. And we're going to uh, set up the Seder meal on the table. We're going to walk through the Passover Seder. You're going to participate with me, your kids. And, and maybe some of you will get opportunities to come forward and sample some of the foods on the table. It's going to be a lot of fun tonight. Encourage you to come back. This is a great teaching opportunity for your children. And all the kids grade school and above will be in the sanctuary with us uh, tonight. And so if you'd like a great family time or if you'd just like to come back yourself,